this morning, I, um, I got online on the, the chapel website, um, and I probably shouldn't have done this. And I thought, let me just look up and see if anybody's spoken on the topic that I had selected. And it turned out that a year ago, Brother Justin Prater spoke on the topic of the biblical covenants. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? Um, I actually have been speaking on the covenants uh, throughout the summer. I got back from Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp, which is in Vienna, Missouri, and we went through 10 sessions with the young people or the staff. Uh, we went through all of the biblical covenants. And, um, and so I have a, a, a good amount of material. If any of you wants to go and do an in-depth study, I have a slide set with a I thought it was 160, it says 190 slides here, um, that kind of goes through all of the, the, the biblical covenants. Uh, the echo is a little bit loud. Um, but this morning, what I'd like to do in this evening is to sort of do a review of some of the covenants and highlight some things. I listened to a little bit of some of the things that Justin taught on and maybe point out some things that he didn't bring out and sort of just share with you that in my own life, I'm really starting to, to just enjoy this big topic and big theme. If you were like me, and I could ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to do that, um, a couple things come into my mind when I think about the biblical covenants. One of them was that I was raised in a local church that presented to me one different way of putting all the scriptures together. I asked this, the kids at camp, I said, if you were asked, how would you put the scriptures together? How would you put the Bible together? And by that, of course, I don't mean that you're going to contribute anything to the word of God, the precious holy word of God. But if someone is to ask you, what's it all about? Would you have a way of saying, well, here's one way to sort of wrap your mind around this book, right? I hope we can do more as we mature in the faith than just say, well, I know this story here, and I know that story there, and I could tell you about Jonah, and um, yeah, I remember about the tabernacle. And so we have these sort of disconnected pictures, and, and we just sort of say, well, I, I think it all goes together somehow. There are ways to sort of put the Bible together as a whole and say, look, this is a way of looking at all the scriptures. And one of those ways is what's known as dispensationalism. You're looking at different times and different periods in the history of God's work with people, and the different things God has done. Another way is by looking at the biblical covenants. They run through the scriptures like threads, linking things together. When I was a young person, nobody ever really taught me through the biblical covenants. And, and I've begun to really enjoy learning about them because now I see them all over the scriptures. And what you'll find is that if you learn the major covenants of scripture and begin to study them, You'll notice that's what you hit first when you open your Bible and start into Genesis. And then when you come into the New Testament, you'll see Paul mention dispensations. They actually both go together. So this morning what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk to you about the biblical covenants, highlight some things, do the same thing tonight. And if you want to go deeper, if the assembly wants to go deeper, we can do a series on the topic or you can get a copy of all the notes, all the slides, and dig through them um, yourself. So let's talk about um, the, the, the biblical covenants this morning. Turn over in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 34. I don't know if I don't see if, Yeah, Justin's in the back. Poor Justin's going to get referred to a lot this morning. I say, well, Justin said this and Justin said that. Um, and and, and when, when he taught on the covenants, he actually pointed out one of the first things that I'd like to, to sort of remind you of this morning is just what is a covenant? What is a covenant? 
something interesting happens in Jeremiah 34. Our Lord is a great communicator. He takes things from different cultures and times and uses them to communicate. You know, you're in a, a I might say American, but I don't know if any of you is visiting here from another country. It's the, this is the 21st century. You know, the word of God has to speak to other people in other cultures. The scriptures had to speak to people who lived in 16th century, I don't even know if it was called Germany then. All right, I don't know what it was. Um, it has to speak to people who live in mainland China 100 years ago. Or, or speak to people who live in North Africa in the 400s AD. The word of God speaks to different people in different cultures and in different times. And God uses some things that you might not be totally familiar with. And this is the importance of Bible background study. And the covenant is one of them. And here we see something. And as a, as a, a Westerner, you might sort of go right over this. Um, Jeremiah chapter 34. We'll read it and then we'll just commit our time this morning to the Lord in prayer again. Look at verse number 8. Jeremiah 34, verse number 8. The word, and I'm, I'm reading from the, the New American Standard this morning. Uh, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant. Okay, so keep your eye on that word. They had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to do what? To proclaim release to them that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew, his brother, in bondage. We're not going to have any more slaves that are Jewish slaves. If you have somebody who's part of the nation of Israel and they're a slave, you let them go. And they all made a covenant together. 10, verse 10. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and set them free. So far, so good. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. What did he say? Verse 14, at the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you. But your forefathers did not obey me or incline their ear to me. Although recently you had turned and done what is right in my sight. You recently did this. You finally got on the track. You finally started setting your slaves free. You hadn't done that for, for centuries. Verse 15, although you had recently returned and done what was right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name, yet you turned and profaned my name, each man took back his male servant and each man his female servant whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and female servants. And then he says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother, each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming the release to you, declares the Lord. To the sword, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> to the sword and to the pestilence and to the famine. And I will make a, you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the men 
who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me. And here's the phrase I'm bringing you to this morning. When they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. Let's just pray, and we'll tackle this subject and look at it in more depth. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to learn something about your character. When we look at the kind of God you are, covenant-making, a promise-making God, and that we would be shaken in a positive way by how long ago you started to make these covenant promises to your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. I read a rather lengthy passage. It's hard sometimes to listen to somebody else read. I wanted to bring you to one of the two passages in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that point, that, that point your attention to actually cutting a covenant. The word covenant is the word, forgive the words, it's just the word berit. When you say the word covenant in the Old Testament, it's the word for cut. And in the ancient Near East, when people wanted to make a serious agreement, they would take an animal and they would cut it and they would separate its parts and they would walk between the parts. Justin mentioned this in his message. And they would basically say something like this. Let what happens to this animal happen to me or happen to you if we don't keep the words of the covenant. Which, what happened to the animal? It was sacrificed. It was killed. Let this curse come upon us. They would do it in the sight of witnesses. Sometimes they would write these things down. And the Lord is saying to these people, you cut a covenant, and you walked between the parts, and you made an oath, and then you went back on it. And it's, that's bad enough. But I made a covenant with you hundreds of years before that you would let your servants go. And you're going back on that covenant. What does it mean to you to know that your God, the God of, maybe he's not your God, maybe you're just sort of, you know, checking things out. But most of you here would claim the Lord God of the Scriptures as your Lord, that he would take something like this from a culture of the ancient Near East and use it to illustrate to the peoples of Israel what kind of agreements he was entering into them. That's pretty graphic. That's pretty dramatic. And the Lord all through the Scripture says, I will make promises to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I will keep these promises and keep these covenants. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he came in the the times of the Gospels, he used all kinds of things from the society and from the times that they lived in to teach them. All the parables bring up pictures, the dragnet and the farmers and the birds of the air and the mustard seed. Our Lord is a great communicator. And the covenant is one of the things that the Lord takes and uses to help us understand what kind of a, what kind of a God he is. Um, what is a covenant? A covenant is basically a relationship between two people based on a promise. Now, there's a lot more that you can get into and sort of more academic ways that you can say it, but that's really what it is. My relationship with you this morning is not based on a promise, right? I didn't make anybody a promise here. It's geographically, and some of you know us, and we sort of fellowship in similar local churches and all these different things, and ultimately, we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what really binds us together. But I didn't make any promises to you. The Lord comes in at major junctures in the history of, 
of the world and binds himself in relationships to people by making these huge promises. And those promises are what we call covenants. Tonight I'll show you a chart, but I've charted out about seven major covenants. Justin took you through at least six of them, and there might be more. I'm going to suggest this morning that we can go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, and there might be one even there. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. God makes big promises, covenants. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're a person that likes distinctions, and sometimes people will get into big discussions, or what's the difference between a covenant and a promise? Right? What's the difference between image and likeness? And spend a lot of time looking at these fine-grained distinctions. You sound like philosophers. You spend time with some of these guys. These fine-grained distinctions. And sometimes you need to back up and just look at the big picture. Paul calls them the covenants of promise in Ephesians, right? How many of you were not Jewish by descent? I, I'm a Gentile. Literally, right? I'm not Jewish. And Paul says, you were strangers from the covenants of promise. You were far off. You had no rights no claims. You couldn't walk up to the, the nation of Israel and say, hey, I want in on this. This looks good. This sounds good. I want in on this. No, you're strangers from the covenants of promise. And then he goes on to say what? But now, you've been brought near. Now, for years, I, my, my eyes just sort of flicked over those verses. You ever read those things? You say, wow, what's going on there? I'm, I'm jumping ahead to tonight. Tonight, we'll talk about some of our relationship to these things. Let me give you another one, sort of a spoiler alert. Every Lord's Day, almost, right? We will turn in the Word of God to something like 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and we'll remember what the Lord did the night in which he was betrayed, and he took a cup, and he said what? This cup is the, the new covenant in my blood. Ever thought about that? Talking about covenant language. There's the Ark of the Covenant, the box of the words of God. This shows up all through Scripture. It's a very interesting and fascinating topic. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And what I want to start with this morning is the simple, obvious question, but why does God make covenant promises? How would you sort of launch into this huge topic of the scriptures? Why does God make covenant promises? Why all the promises, Lord? What does it say in verse 1 of Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? God makes this earth. He makes these animals. He makes the... Uh, he, he brings order to the earth. And then look down in verse number 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. None of the other animals were made in the image of God. According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God gives dominion to Adam. He creates this planet. And what's its purpose? What's the purpose of planet Earth? There's a number of things. But we read in Colossians that all things were made by him and for him. 
We read in the Psalms that nature and the creation show forth the handiwork of God. They declare his glory. It seems to me that God creates a planet and that when we look upon it and the angels looked upon it, it was to advertise God's glory. It was to advertise his greatness. There was to be a race of people on this planet that bore the image of God, that thought like God, that cared about what God cared about, that wanted what God wanted. There was a man that was to share in God's dominion. What did the angels think about that? What in the world? He was made a little lower than the angels. Why has God given dominion to that creature? Lower than us. What's the Lord doing? Do you ever think about the fact that the Lord is teaching the angelic realm through what's going on here on earth? Let me give you a couple verses. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Why covenants? Why covenants? And you're thinking, I don't know. You haven't said why yet. You're just reading verses to us. Why covenants? Please tell us. <laughs> One of the reasons, as you're going to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that I think the Lord made these covenant promises is that he created the earth to be good, to be full of righteousness and advertisement to the Lord's awesomeness and greatness, and then sin entered the picture and started to ruin everything. And you get to ask yourself, as you're arriving at Ephesians 3, and maybe you didn't hear what I just said, you get to ask yourself, what's the Lord going to do is God going to surrender his earth to sin is he going to just sort of wipe it out and start again what's God going to do I mean God had a plan for the planet and you see sin and you see an attack on the planet I'll mention this in a minute what's God going to do one of the things that I help that helps me to understand why God has allowed sin to enter the picture. This gets into the, these big topics of God's free, our free will and these kind of things. Is that God knew that if sin entered the scene of his creation, this would offer an opportunity. He didn't bring it in. But if it entered, this would offer an opportunity for people to see the other attributes of God. Adam and Eve would have known the Lord only as creator as powerful in that sense. But when sin entered, then they began to discover other things about the Lord. Namely that he is what? He's holy. He's righteous. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's a redeemer. The Lord didn't bring sin into the picture. But when sin entered, it provided an opportunity to see the other attributes of the Lord. We'll mention this later, but in Revelation chapter 4, at the end of the scene of sort of time when the, the, the story of history is being wrapped up in Revelation, those that are in heaven praise the Lord in Revelation 4. They sing a song. You know what the song they sing, they sing about? They sing about the creative power of God. He's the creator. But in Revelation 5, they sing a new song. And what's that song about? You're not just creator. You've redeemed us from every tribe in every tongue, in every nation. When sin entered the picture, we get to see something brand new about God. We get to see all of his other attributes explode. His redemptive mercy, his grace, his power, his initiative to save. And that's one of the things that you enjoy when you study the covenants of Scripture. You get to watch a God come back and back 
and back and back into the scene of human failure and sin and make promises to restore and promises to fix. Almost, well, all of the covenants, you can detect them because you'll see God say this, I will. I will do this. I will do that. And you just sort of just sit here and you just watch the Lord. And hopefully you worship him for it. Ephesians chapter 3. Somebody else is watching the Lord. Look what chapter 3 verse 10 says. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 8 for context. Paul writes, To me, the very least of all his saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the dispensation or the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Why? Look at verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Did you ever think about that? That part of God's work on earth is not just for your instruction, but for the instruction of the angelic realm. There, there's multitudes of them out there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Angels are often referred to in terms of principalities and powers, rulers, arch rulers. There's some type of structure among their ranks. First Peter, these are all familiar verses to you, I'm sure. When you put them together, it gets kind of interesting. You put them next to each other. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 10 says this, First Peter 1, 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What's that last little clause say? Things which angels long to look into. He just puts that in there. They're looking. He's teaching them. They long to look. When you read about the, the, the First Corinthians chapters, chapter 11, about the, the veiling of the sisters when the assembly is gathered, what's one of the reasons? I know there's an interpretive issue there, but it's because of the angels. One way, I'm not saying it's the way, but one way to look at this passage is that when the Lord introduces the headship even in the very Trinity, the head of Christ is God, or, or you kind of get into these things, it brings up immediately the fact that in the angelic realm, you have a big issue there. Lots of the angels said, we're not going to submit ourselves to the Lord's order. We're out of here. Satan, Lucifer himself, said, I will be like the Most High God. He elevated himself. And you introduce that theme, the theme of authority and order and God's order and and, and, and you mentioned the angels. This, this simple symbol just latches on to this huge historical issue of the angelic realm and whether they would or wouldn't submit to the Lord's order. Now, you could interpret the, the angels to be 
you know, leaders in the church. I understand that. But potentially, that's a potential impact of that, that, that passage. Angels, because of the angels. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, you know what the angels are called? They're called watchers. By the decree of the watchers. There's a lot of verses that hint at the fact that God is teaching and instructing the angelic realm, not just us, the, the things that he does. And so here you have a world, and God created it, and it was good. Man was put on it to reflect God's glory, to bear his image. Before who? Who else was watching? The angelic realm was watching. Adam was put in the garden to keep it, to guard it, in addition to cultivating it. Guard it from who? Maybe the angelic realm. Somebody entered that garden, right? And did Adam keep the garden and guard the garden? He abdicated his headship. Let's go back to that story. Genesis chapter 3. One of the things that you can say if you ask yourself why covenants is just this big, huge historical topic of God coming into our story, into our history, and redeeming just because of who he is. Merciful, gracious, righteous. God's not going to surrender the earth to the angelic realm. He's not going to surrender it to sin. He's not going to surrender his plan to anyone. And he comes into history time and time again and makes these big promises, I will do this, I will do that. And when you watch them get unpacked and unfolded through history, what do you see God doing? He's just reversing all of the impacts of sin and undoing and redoing and fixing. All of the major covenants of Scripture flow throughout all of human history and find their fulfillment in Christ and in the millennial kingdom. Maybe you could point that out with a little chart tonight. Genesis. Let's, let's look at Genesis chapter 3. God gives them the creation mandate, Adam and Eve. Have dominion, keep the earth, subdue it, fill it, cultivate it. A rich picture. You kind of, your imagination lets loose. What would it have been like had they just done that? And then sin enters, and they begin to die, and they're separated from God. Sin ruins everything. That's what a part of the power of the picture of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Just one simple disobedient action cracks wide open the relationship with God and the whole human race. Just one simple action. That's what you're supposed to get from that, among other things. So here we are, and we're in Genesis chapter 3, and let's read um, from verse number 14. The Lord comes and he speaks to the serpent and to the man and to the woman. What's God going to do? Is he going to surrender his world to sin? Is he going to, what's he going to do? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the servant, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity, look at this verse, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And some, some, some English translations talk about crushing of the head of the serpent. Now we're going quickly here, 
But here's the picture. Adam is going to farm by the sweat of his brow. Eve is going to have children in pain. They're ejected from the garden. They're beginning to die. All of this is going wrong. God's letting them live. And you could sort of sit here and ask yourself the question, what's going to happen? And in the middle of this judgment, God gives one big I will promise. What's the I will promise here? It doesn't call it a covenant, but it matches all of the other features of the covenant. And many Bible teachers down through history have felt that there's something huge going on here, and it is because it deals with all of the sin of mankind. Look at verse number 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Who's that seed going to ultimately be? The Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Galatians speaks that in the fullness of time, Christ came born of a, of a woman. The seed of a woman. You sing that, I think it's a Christmas hymn. The long promised seed of the woman. And you can just read past it. Okay, M&T, all right, going on with the story. You're like, wait, 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 wait. This is colossal. God has now said in the middle of all of these negatives, something very positive is going to happen. A huge promise that you want to cling to like nothing else. What else is there to cling to in this story? What hope is there? You're going to die. There's going to be pain. You're going to go back to the dust, Adam. The earth is cursed. What is there to cling to? In the middle of the story, the Lord says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, and he will crush your head. One day, the seed of the woman would come and ultimately deal with the problem of sin. One day, somebody was going to come who was going to ultimately deal with the serpent. Ultimately. And in Revelation, we read of that old serpent, the devil, and who ultimately deals with him? The Lord Jesus Christ does. Ultimately takes him and throws him in the lake of fire. This little promise stretches the entire length of human history. One day someone would come that would deal with this figure. That's a big, big, big deal. And that's what the covenants are like. God steps into a scene of failure, and he judges, and he brings accountability, but then he says, but I will do this. And many people feel that this is a covenant promise, a promise. God binds himself in relationship. When I say what a covenant was, what's a covenant? A relationship that is established on a promise. God has now bound himself to humanity until he fulfills this promise. In a unique way. Otherwise, God is not good, right? Well, you never brought this promised seed of a woman who would deal with the serpent, right? He's still out there like a roaring, raging lion whom he, seeking whom he may devour. The Lord made a promise. Are you so used to sin that you don't hope for a day that the enemy of your souls, so you have the world, the flesh, and the devil, Right? The Lord is dealing with you, the flesh, and he's going to deal with the world. But one day he's going to deal with the devil, too. That your enemy will be defeated. That's a big, big promise. Um, he deceived, he's called the deceiver of the whole world in Revelation 12. There's a lot of verses here. Um, 
And that, that promise affects you today. Let's look at another one. Um, turn to Genesis chapter 6. Justin introduced all of the major covenants of Scripture. Um, we, could, we, could, we could go into a lot more on that topic. Some believers think that God made a covenant even before that. That gets into the issue of covenant theology, which I'm not talking about. And by the way, don't mistake biblical covenants with covenant theology. They're, they're, they're related, but they're different. Uh, covenant theology understands um, the scriptures as a whole to, um, to include the idea that before, etern- before the earth was created, God had a covenant that he made in eternity past. Um, and that there was a covenant of works that God made with Adam. And that Adam broke that covenant by, not, by eating of the tree. And that then God introduced a covenant of grace. Um, I don't think that can be established that well from that passage. But that's not what we're talking about. We're just going through the biblical covenants. We're here in Genesis chapter 6. Let me sort of, let me set it up again. I'll just kind of go through this. I'm going to cycle through this multiple times. Watch the pattern in Scripture and then enjoy it on your own when you read the Bible. You have God creating a good world. Sin enters the picture. You get to say, what's God going to do? He judges sin, but then what does he do? He gives a promise of righteousness, of restoration. One day I'll deal with a serpent. Now we come again to the story of Noah. What's gone on? The world is racked by wickedness, racked with sin, evil, a dark place. What's God going to do? Same thing. Enter in with judgment, enter in with righteousness, but he's going to make a promise. I will do this. And you're going to cling to that promise for human history. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5 says this. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. There's a huge theological question in that verse. What does that mean? Wow, what does that mean for God to experience sorrow? Um, uh, some English translators said he repented God that he made man. He was grieved in his heart. In verse 7, then the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals, to creeping things, the birds, the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So he tells them to make an ark. He tells them he's going to bring a flood upon the earth in verse 17. And then we read this in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now jump forward to chapter 8. And look at verse 20, then we'll go into chapter 9. Catch the picture again. Evil, sin, wickedness has entered the world. God has judged it. Is God going to surrender his planet, his world, his plan to wickedness and sin? No way. Absolutely not. God is righteous. He's full of justice and holiness. When Jesus came onto the earth, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and Truth, God will look you in the eye and call it like it is. Right? 
this is what it is, it's sin, and I have to deal with it. God will not overlook any sin. Yet he's also full of grace and mercy and redeems and saves and rescues. He finds a way to be both 110% righteous and holy and just and 110% merciful and loving. And we see that hinted at in the covenants. God judging, but then there's a promise. Wait, I'm going to do this. Verse number 20, Then Noah built an altar. He comes out of the ark, built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings of the altar. On the altar, the Lord smelled the smoothing aroma, um, the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, very interesting phrase, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Never again curse the ground. This reminds you of what happened in Eden. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now watch this. While the earth remains, if there's still an earth, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 9. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, all, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. This, this is fascinating. God's making a covenant with everybody. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. He talks about the rainbow. Of all the covenants in Scripture, this is the one that I understand the least. I can link up, and we'll talk about it tonight, the Abrahamic covenant, out of it flows, there's a land, the seed, a blessing promise, out of it flows a land covenant, a seed, a Davidic king covenant, and a blessing covenant, the new covenant, we'll talk about that. The Mosaic covenant, we see how it fits in temporarily till Christ comes. But this covenant, made with all the world and all the creatures, Isaiah hints at it, it seems like Isaiah calls it a covenant of peace. This is like the waters of Noah, the Lord says to me in Isaiah chapter 54. It seems like the Lord is saying, I've destroyed the world by a flood. I will not surrender it to sin. But I'm going to make a covenant with you, a promise to you. You're all so used to it. You don't wake up one Tuesday morning and say, I wonder if the Lord's going to wipe us all out today. Right? You should enjoy the grace of God. You don't wonder, is sea time going to pass? Is the Lord? I mean, we have droughts and we have tsunamis and we have hurricanes. But you just kind of know that give it a little bit of time. And this is all going to continue. God doesn't have to do that. He makes a covenant with all of the world. And I think he refers back to it. We'll close with this. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 33. I just, 
You get, you get excited about certain things in the scriptures at certain times in your life, and sometimes they really hit you with force, and sometimes they don't. I remember one of my, my teachers said one time, what you read matters, but he said it also matters when you read it. Certain times in your life you'll read something and really gets you at that time in your life, and sometimes you're not ready for it or, or those kind of things. But just watching the Lord move and, and just kind of come into history again and again and again, and we just looked at uh, just at two of them here, Jeremiah chapter 33, we get the introduction of the new covenant, all right? Now, we haven't talked about the covenant made with Moses and the covenant made with David the king or anything like that. But here, the Lord seems to refer to this covenant um, around verse number 20. And I'm going to read from verse 14 down to verse 20, and, and look what he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. One of the main reasons of the Davidic covenant is a king will come who will bring righteousness and defeat evil. The lion of the tribe of Judah. How do you defeat a lion? With a bigger lion. Right? Who's seeking to devour you? The lion. But one day, the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come. He's the only one that can open the seals of that scroll and finally bring justice and righteousness to earth. And, and, and Peter, Peter, John, cries. Well, no, is there somebody that's going to bring righteousness to earth? And the elder says, no, no, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the scroll. He can bring justice and righteousness to earth. You should be like, yeah. This is good, right? You, don't, you just don't get used to sin and failure and death and wickedness. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Christ is going to fix it. I talked about this morning in the Lord's Supper. He's not just saving you. He's saving the planet. Yeah, people will die and perish because of their sin. But God is not going to su surrender his planet to sin. And so, so we read here, the branch of David will bring forth justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. They were totally defeated at the time of this writing. This is the name by which, he sh which she shall be called. What's the, what's the city going to be named? The Lord our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man. This is the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. To sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me. That might be a hint at another covenant um, made. Uh, to, to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Here we go, verse 19. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that I, he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and Levi to minister to me. It's, it's awesome to see the Lord make promises like that. What's he referring to, my covenant with the day and the night? He might be referring to the Noahidic covenant. As long as there's an earth, day and night, sea time, harvest, I promise you, the Lord says, it's going to keep going. And then he comes later on talking about a different covenant. He says, if you can break that covenant, then maybe I'll give up all my promises to David. We're out of time. But you read this and you should go, oh, this is good. 
God's making promises and God is fixing and God is saying, there's no way I'm not going to do this. And you read your Bible and you will watch God restore righteousness and fix everything. And the covenants will just pop everywhere you read. Come out and the Lord's referring to the promises I made and the things that I said I was going to do. I'm going to do them. And they all find their fulfillment in Christ. He's the seed of the woman. He's the ultimate king of David that sits on the throne. He's the son of Abraham. And he brings in righteousness. There's little complications along the way. How do you fit in? You're not part of the seed of Israel. We'll talk about a little bit of that tonight. It's a wonderful topic. Dig in. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would help us to search the scriptures and to enjoy the God that you are. Father, thank you for the fact that even though in our own personal lives, Lord, not just internationally, but personally, when sin and failure just are staring us in the face, we can run to your promises and cling on to them. Lord, not by our works, not by our righteousness, not hold on to our performance, but hold on to your promises, your righteousness, your plan, your solution. Father, thank you for salvation by grace. Thank you for being a God of righteousness who will one day restore. Lord, you swept us up into your plan for the ages. Lord, you have just destroyed us along with everyone like under the flood, but you sent your son to die for us. You've planned a way of escape while dealing with sin. It's just amazing, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, we couldn't have thought any of this up. We couldn't have dreamed it up. It's just a testimony to the fact this is your word. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.